For November 15th, 2010, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 124. Strangely Apropos. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. This week, on a very special commemorative Veterans Day Overthinking It podcast, we ask our panel, including special guest Randall Schwartz, what are you a veteran of? That's right. We celebrated uh, Armistice Day here in, uh, <laughs> in the United States. Uh, I have my it- poppy on my lapel still. <laughs> pip, pip. Over the top. Uh, cheerio. Anyway, continue. <laughs> my, um, yeah, my, uh, the public university I attend did not cancel everything on this day. So uh, they apparently hate veterans. Um, so there you go. That's, uh, that's them. But not us. Not us. And, and in a way, Pete... Aren't we all veterans in a way? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so uh, what, are, what are you a veteran of? We will, get, uh, we will get everyone, but we'll start with Pete. Drink if you're playing the drinking game. Woohoo! No, you drink if I'm not first, right? Oh, you're or right. You That's on, right. You, drink, you can drink anyway. Like, by drink all means, way, drink. Yes. Mint Milano's. There, now you can drink. <laughs> uh, definitely. So, so I'm going to go by the civilization definition of veteran, which that video, in that video game, somebody is a veteran if they've, uh, they've had something happen to them such that they then become one and a half times as good at, at doing it. Right, like you, you get you get much better at something after having something happen to you. So uh, I'm a veteran of losing my umbrella. Like I'm, so, I've lost my umbrella so many times that I'm now actually like really, really, really good at losing my umbrella. Like I see other people trying to lose their umbrellas, like leaving it on the train or something, and I look at them and I'm all grizzled. And I've got this beard, and I was like, never forget your umbrella on the train. I mean, never forget. No, I mean, I'll lose my. I like. I like be in a. In a I, I actually, you could lock me in like a five by five room, um, with no escape and only locks from the outside. And like, and like, I don't have any keys or anything on me, and I'm straitjacketed, and I will find a way to lose my umbrella in that room because I am that good. And that is that is what experience is. That's the difference between being experienced and 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 being a greenhorn, being a rookie, being a tenderfoot. Um, being another an inexperienced person, so there nice. you go. There you go. Yeah, definitely, definitely. You, you know, umbrella Nicely in done. Your backpack. I, I, I should I should say I've managed to lose five umbrellas, all of which I bought at once. But I I tip my hat to you, sir. That is... Where were you? Sta- where were you stationed when you lost your umbrella? Oh, uh, this was this was at uh, this was at Quezon. Oh, I heard, I heard, I heard. Shit was pretty bad down there when we were. Yeah. losing umbrellas. I mean, it was, yeah. it was also it was also pretty bad military, you know, struggle. But the umbrellas were the were the cruelest blow. I was uh, I was stationed on the M60 bus when I lost my. Last oh number. man, I heard about that. I, I saw about that on the History Channel. Man, that was <laughs> that was pretty pretty heavy duty. Definitely, my, my charge from uh, from the 125th Street Metro North station up to the wilds of Columbia. Yeah. By the way, on Saturday I'm going to be hanging out with the VLU. Uh, if you want to come by, just have a drink, talk about old times, <laughs> which is the veterans of lost umbrellas, which is a great organization. <laughs> well, uh, uh, Peter Fenzel, we salute you and we thank you for your sacrifice. John Thanks. Parrish. Thank you very much. What up? All right. It's uh, been a long time since we've heard your, the dulcet tones of your call sign on the, uh, on the podcast. Of my, of my oddly inappropriate bray. All right. So <laughs> I am, and this is, I realize I've never told this anecdote on the podcast. I am a veteran of a rap battle. 
which was Ooh. which was interesting enough. A rap battle which I pretty egregiously lost. Here's uh, here's how it went down. So I was at Wait. I was at karaoke in. Uh, oh, I in... was at this one. This was awesome. This was awesome. Okay, continue, continue. continue. So I was at Sorry. I was at karaoke at the at the bar. <laughs> oh my god, Pete, was at this one. The story you're about to hear is good. Rat yeah. Rat. Well... <laughs> good definition. <laughs> rat, rat, rather, please. All right. So I'm at this bar in in Cambridge that Fenzel and I frequent, the Asgard, where we do karaoke on Wednesdays, which is a, a pretty pretty popular karaoke night. Do. In some small part to Fenzel, myself, and our friends, you know, making it a big thing. And one of my uh, one of my karaoke staples, which I'm fortunate enough this place has a big enough track list to have, is uh, Nas's hip hop uh, classic "Made You Look," which came off of uh, his 2004 album "God's Son." I think it's 2004. So I'm doing this one night, and it's in the summer, so the windows to the bar open has these huge bay windows that open up out on the street, and I see someone. You know, who passing by the passing by the windows, who stops and flags the karaoke DJ over and, and whispers something to him. And, you know, I'm, I'm in the midst of a performance, so I keep going through this. I, I finish my performance. The audience applauds, whatever. And the guy who was on the street calls me over to the window and he, you know, shakes my hand, says, yo, man, that that was tight. That was really tight. But I, I got to get in there. I got to get on that. So I'm like, all right, you know, cool. Do what you do, because. You know, sometimes after karaoke, if I do a good job, people talk about how good it was. And they're like, yeah, okay. So I, I don't think anything of it until the guy comes in through the front door, takes the mic, uh, asks DJ Paul to put the same track back on, and then wraps a completely different track over it freestyle. Like some something he'd, he'd written himself because this guy was, in point of fact, uh, an amateur rapper who performed, you know, in and around the, the Boston club scene. Uh, I I didn't I didn't catch his name at the time, but you know, so he he comes in and he uh, you know takes the same track that I just rapped on, lays a completely different track down over it, and then he he asked me to step up and, and go back, and I uh, with with good cause uh, completely turned down his request because I would have <laughs> I would have made even more of an ass of myself than I already had uh, being. A, a white guy, B, you know, someone who was just rapping at karaoke as opposed to someone who legitimately knew what they were doing, and C, kind of kind of scared of the notion of performing all of a sudden. So that was I, I survived, but I was I was wounded within, both physically and mentally, but primarily mentally, and not at all physically. And uh, it was it was definitely a learning experience. So he brought a gun to your knife fight. He did, he did. Uh, that's uh, he. I, I was. I thought I was shooting, but he said he was shooting, and he made me look. And I was. <laughs> I, was a, I was a slave to a page in his rhyme book. I, I, thought I, was, I thought I was making big money, but he said, "Playboy, your time's up. Uh, where them gangsters? Where them dimes at?" And they, those dimes were nowhere to be found. <laughs> he didn't bring a gun to a knife fight. He like saw John with a knife, brought a gun, and didn't realize that John was like chopping vegetables. <laughs> John was like not knife fighting at all. Like John was like doing a, a very serviceable, very very good uh, job of this thing that he was doing, but he was not engaging anyone in battle. Uh, what I wonder about this experience was: did the guy not know that it was a NAS song? No, or no, song? no, he did. I mean that that's yeah. what that's what got him to stop because it's a it's a popular enough song. I mean he must have heard it playing, then came in and, and saw me doing. It's like hold on, I need to I need to represent how rap should actually be done. Which yeah. is is fair. Which is fair. I mean, I I like to think I'm okay at it, but it's it's fair for someone who's better at to take the mic from me. I By will, the way, I will th- that. 
the other fun thing about this was that this guy, he was an awesome rapper, and he was like 6'3 or something ridiculous, uh, but he was also underage, I'm pretty sure. So they let him into the bar based on his rapping skills, uh, <laughs> not in fact, based on his being able to show ID. And he, had be, a, he had a cougar girlfriend, too, which was pretty funny. That would be fantastic awesome. if you could get past a bouncer based on, you know, uh, the rhymes you could spit right there. You know that happens in a lot of like medieval tales with like bridges and stuff. It's like you better, you better say something pretty ill in our riddle competition. Yo yo <laughs> yo! <laughs> you yo answer me these questions three. Blue, Blue. no the, green. Sorry. Air the other side. You see. Uh, well, thank you, John Parrish. We salute you and we appreciate your sacrifice. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Special guest Randall Schwartz. Uh, other than several overthinking it podcasts, of which this is, I think, your third, what are you a veteran of? I am a veteran of the conflicting, changing meanings of the word hacker over time. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, Go I, on. I, I'd say definitely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because when I started using hacker, lo these many 30 years ago, uh, hacker meant someone who would tinker with things in unusual ways and kind of poke and prod at it and kind of see where it goes and see how far it could go before it breaks and so on. And it was a noble, noble position to take to be a hacker. In fact, that was sort of the upside of the elite in that sense. But over time, the uh, press needed some sort of word to attribute to the bad guys. And so the word hacker got associated with the bad guys because all bad guys that were worth their salt were hackers, but not all hackers were bad guys. So unfortunately, the press didn't make that distinction. And when I run around telling people I'm just another Pearl hacker, all the kids seem to think it means, oh, he's a bad guy. But I'm not a bad guy. I'm just a good guy. Ah, interesting. That's sort of like how the word knight, how like knight used to mean just like a, a kid, like a teenager. And then it became to mean like a teenager who encases his body in metal and stabs other people with giant knives while riding on the back of a horse. It's exactly is, like that. Yeah, yeah, it's a little different. It's a little different. <laughs> so, then, so, it, so, hack used to mean just sort of like cut in an imprecise manner, right? Like, like with great enthusiasm. Is that what the where it came from? Or and then it came well, that, to be like an older version of hacker. Yes, but <laughs> the, hacker, the hacker when I started using it was about uh, being sort of inside the machine and understanding it and having a oneness with it. And uh, that, again, that's all been perverted since then. Mm, mm, I gotcha. I gotcha. Another interesting note, the word bachelor, that used to mean somebody who rode on a horse with a giant knife that stabbed people. And then now that means a young guy who's married. So these things, they went crisscross uh, around like the 1300s. So, and I don't think anybody who uses, uh, there are a lot of people who use Pearl who are bachelors. So maybe that's where it's going to for the next uh, the next. <laughs> Just phase. another pearl bachelor. There we go. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you could call yourself like. Although that implies that you've got a certain level of education too uh, in it, which I think is not necessarily what you want if you're working on pearl. It takes practical experience. I mean, we can all, we can also reclaim the term knave or villain, which are also applicable applicable Ooh. to uh, pearl users. Mm-hmm. True. <laughs> Definitely right. Knaves. They are the, right. Hardy. Um, yeah, wasn't it originally at MIT or at Berkeley, the people who were in, like, the model train club and built these extensive model train setups with, you know, automated switches and things like this? Where we'll call what? Sounds right. Who were called, they were the, who they were called the hackers? hackers. My, my source for this is Stephen Levy's book, Hackers, uh, where he traces the, um, he traces the, the kind of the rise of the... You know of the the movement that gave us the internet, um, 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I'm, to, I found I found corroboration of your story on the internet. So to, he he traces it to uh, MIT and to their like model train enthusiast uh, thing, where they would they would build these elaborate um, model train tracks and you know dioramas and models and scenarios and things like this. And then underneath the table where these things were all built up, um, there would be this this uh, wonderland of you know switches and wires and and automated things and working with this mechanical stuff was the uh was the origins of of um i don't know of what we think of now as kind of geek or tech culture yes yeah so i'm looking it up now the tech model railroad club tmrc is where the word hacker comes from uh and it refers and they say it it refers to someone who applies ingenuity to create a clever result called a hack the essence of a hack is that it's done quickly and is usually inelegant. It accomplishes the desired goal without changing the design of the system it is embedded in, despite being at odds with the larger system design. Uh, so, so you can think about how that would work with a model train, right? Like you're trying to make some sort of change in the model train network without like undermining the way that the entire thing works and having to build it up from scratch. So you have to like swap a couple pieces or connect some wires in a different way. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And now it means thieves and well, devious. Means, yeah, exactly. There's there's this um, like today's article we record on Sunday. So today's article in the New York Times magazine, the cover story is this is about this kid named. Uh, well, I guess he's not a kid anymore. At one point, he was a kid, uh, as were we all. <laughs> nice named, segue. Named Albert Gonzalez, who. Um, uh, oh, yeah, I've I read that one. Yeah, he was behind. Uh, he was behind the the TJ well, the TJ Maxx uh, and Marshall's credit card heist that severely compromised them, as well as several other massive uh, issues of, of corporate or of credit card fraud against uh, large corporations in the uh, in the in the last decade. You know, it used to be about exploration. Now it's just about stealing credit card numbers. Yeah, I know. But, but really. But really, isn't stealing other people's credit card numbers and using them to finance uh, Mercedes purchases a form of exploration in a way? (laughs) In a way, yes, in a way. (laughs) Uh, Overthinking it fans from a long time know this already, but I have this long-standing gripe with the phrase in a way, where I define it to mean uh, whatever I just said or I'm about to say is false. (laughs) It's like what in a way means. So like the the example I always bring up is – in a way, Kurt Cobain is still alive today. <laughs> when in fact, no, his head was quite obliterated by a shotgun blast. <laughs> uh, one of those I was like, get the kind of gun wrong. I apologize. But anyway, go ahead. One of those throwaway phrases like, uh, you know, it goes without saying. Well, then why are you saying it? <laughs> My other favorite one is when somebody says, just kidding. And it, and it doesn't mean that they're kidding at all. It just means, please don't hold me accountable for what I just said. For, for what I'm about <laughs> to say. The other one oh, yeah. like that, the other one like that, uh, which is my favorite because it means exactly nothing, is I'm just saying. Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. You know what I mean? Because that, that, that statement is incapable of being spoken without always being precisely true. Yeah, <laughs> unless they're also painting. And like, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, like, all right. Uh, well, uh, thank you, uh, Comrade Schwartz. We uh, we thank you for your service and we salute you. And finally, I I am a veteran of the Costco parking lot on the weekend. 
Uh, <laughs> oh is, man, do you still have your leg? Did you have to cut your leg off? No, that absolutely. sounds so horrible. To get out um, of to get out of that thing, the uh, the life of man in the state of nature, which is what I call the Costco parking lot on the weekend. Uh, the state of nature is solitary, <laughs> poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And I uh, I was lucky to escape with my life my life and with 144 rolls of uh, downy soft toilet paper. <laughs> See, I prefer the, the uh, Lockean state of nature. So when I go to Trader Joe's, there's just a bunch of black top and I have a bu- white bucket of paint and I make like circles and I, I par- paint my car in them. Uh, <laughs> Tabula rasa, yeah. it's a blank slate and we get to make, we get oh, to I make thought, our humanity. What? I, th- I thought it was because you were mixing your labor with nature in order to define property, but that, that works too. Oh, yeah, yeah, either way. That's not the state of nature, but that's definitely, uh, yeah, I, I do enclosure acts. I just, like, go to other people's things. I put fences around them and say they're mine. Like, I'm English from the 17th century. It's pretty awesome. So, it is pretty awesome. Yeah, All right, definitely, well, definitely. pushing on, uh, I like to think that, you know, Unstoppable came out this weekend, right? Yes! And, uh, this was an earth-shattering event. <laughs> this changed the way that people will live forever. And it's about a train, which is we've already talked about. So there's like segways galore. We, Definitely. Um, though we, we did... Uh... Uh, we did give Megamind the overthinking it bump by uh, discussing it on our last overthinking it podcast. So I guess right. Megamind beat Unstoppable at the box office. Uh, and Pete pointed out in the pre-show that this makes its name ironic. But um, but the name of Unstoppable, <laughs> yes, not the name of Megamind. <laughs> Actually, Megamind becomes our, uh, more Morissetian irony as well, right? Like because overthinking it overthought it, then it overperformed, um, and it's super smart and brainy and mega mindish. Anyway, 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 I've interrupted you way too many times. I got to back off and be demure. I, you know, when I back back in the the days when I was a high school English teacher, I uh, I had a fellow high school English teacher who, who was another young guy who used to play a game called uh, ironic, unfortunate, or strangely apropos, <laughs> <laughs> where you would you would go through the lyrics of the. Uh, Alanis Morissette song, and you would uh, discuss each one, uh, whether it was ironic, unfortunate, or strangely apropos. Excellent. You know? We should use that. Let's. If anybody has any instances of that during the podcast, like let's bust it out and let's uh... <laughs> cut it. Ironic, unfortunate, or <laughs> or strangely apropos. Hey, Pete, what can you uh, since um since you're the only one who saw the film Unstoppable? Uh, yes, the which other, is strangely the... apropos because Denzel Washington and Chris Pine are the only ones who can stop that runaway train in the movie Unstoppable. No, what were you saying? <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> since, That's unfortunate. Since, <laughs> since the uh since you're the only one who saw it um we're gonna ask you to take a back seat while the other three of us discuss the film you know what this is exactly the problem that denzel washington and chris pine confronted in the movie unstoppable <laughs> when the larger infrastructure of the pennsylvania railroad company wouldn't stop the runaway train and take their advice and they had to take matters into their own hands tell us tell so. us a little bit about the movie pete Really? You want me to? Yes, or are you just just kidding? Okay, I'll be very I'll be very fast about it. Tell us like, a story. <laughs> tell us a story. So uh, the main thing I want to say is that this movie is actually pretty good, which is like really surprising. And I know I hate reviewing movies on on Overthinking a Podcast, and I want to talk about it more. But the thing about this movie is the execution is just really solid, right? Like like it's a it's about a train, right? I read a review in the Metro that said that this movie was terrible because a train is on a track. 
So it can't go any direction other than direction it's going. So this makes all stories that involve runaway trains or trains in general as their their main plot point being like very uninteresting because it's like the train's not going to suddenly turn to the left, right? Like the train has to keep going along the track. Um, like that being said, the movie is is somewhat predictable. There's a train and it is going and they need to stop it. And it would be really tragic if Denzel Washington and Chris Pine both died and the train destroyed Pittsburgh or something. But that, you know, spoiler, uh, that doesn't happen. Um, Pittsburgh that, fails utterly to be destroyed. It, yeah, Pittsburgh isn't even in the movie. So, but, but, uh, so I wanted to make sure that I didn't spoil anything for you guys. It may destroy a different city. Um, but it's like, it's like a surprisingly small amount of like actual information that they base the this, this story on. It's just like there's a train and they have to stop the train. But they, the movie is about two hours long and it goes along at a very crisp pace. And they, they, the filmic craft that creates the suspense as to thinking about what's going to happen next, even though the sub the subset of things that might happen next is like very small, right? Like there's not that many different ways that the train could be stopped or not stopped or, or keep going or not keep going. Um, but they, and they keep coming up with different sort of things that they have to talk about and reasons that they have to deal with it. And it doesn't feel like sort of episodic and rote. It like feels very like vital and it feels like the characters involved in it are, are doing a good job. And I don't know whether this is because of the acting or the writing. I think that the actual like storyboarding and, and directing and, and filming of it is really important important because it's a really cool looking movie if you like actually looking at trains um which i know a lot of people do because they're what is just snickering you, you, you mean you mean like hackers yeah, like if, if you're a hacker which means you, that you exactly strangely apropos and unfortunate if you're a hacker by which i mean if you enjoy if you enjoy model trains then you would love this movie because it's sort of like black dog without being absurd and Black Dog is, of course, the best movie ever made about trucks starring Patrick Swayze and Meatloaf, which I love. It has, it has all these lingering pornographic shots of trucks, like, driving down streets. Unstoppable has a lot of shots of, like, old train yards and bridges and steel and, and, and like, everything. All the, uh, all the, the sort of the parts are really squeaky. Um, from a cultural standpoint, one of the things that's really interesting about Unstoppable, and this is a, something, a problem I have with a lot of the reports in the news about the economy, um, is that uh, people are, are always talking about, oh, like we need to create tomorrow's green jobs and we need to educate our workforce and, and we need to really evolve this economy and, and get it moving forward and figure out the new way that we're going to innovate our way out of this problem. When, I mean, the, the movie is about these guys who run these trains, and Denzel Washington's been running this train for like 28 years or something. And, uh, I mean, he's not going to go become a, like a clean tech engineer, right? Like, he, he, he drives a train, right? Um, and, and so when you think about the huge mass of people who do things like, you know, do freight train work, right? Um, like, and you think about all these sort of like web 2.0, like, you know, we're going to do devolve supply chain, global operations and all this other crazy stuff that people are talking about to try to get the economy going and, and get people employed. Uh, you have to consider that like, not everybody is sort of a bright eyed, bushy tailed, uh, you know, like, like world conqueror, knowledge, white collar kind of person. And, and like, there's lots and lots and lots and lots of people who are involved in very dirty, heavy industry and transportation. Transportation and infrastructure, uh, and, and this movie really does portray uh, an infrastructure that is very much in the decline. 
Uh, and and although there are really in the corporate headquarters and the switching headquarters, there's like there's like a very sharp and snazzy and modern. They've got view screens and web interfaces and conference calls and, and everything is very technological. It's almost like a diehard movie in that respect because there's this infrastructure around it that's like very high tech and very white collar. Uh, and these people who think they can solve the problem, but when you actually get down on the ground where the problem is happening, you need people who can like climb into the train and throw the brake, right? Um, you need like John McClane in the skyscraper who can actually like go across the broken glass and like take out Hans Gruber. Like spoiler, there's glass in Die Hard. Sorry to spoil it for you. Um, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that it was an. In- it's interesting. It was very obviously created for this cultural moment. They were like, let's make a movie um, about like sort of crumbling rail infrastructure and about like a disaster that was averted by hardworking working class people who are losing their jobs in America today. Um, so like let's let's do that. Let's make that movie. Um, and and then at, in terms of watching it, oh, it's very well crafted. Like oh, it's very well directed. Like oh, this is this is actually a pretty interesting movie. The crowd was cheering at the end of the movie, which was crazy. I mean, I, people do applaud more often at movies than they used to, but I really felt like the movie, from an artistic and and uh, and from a like a cultural critical standpoint, uh, and complexity and interest and and even from awesomeness, like pure awesomeness, wasn't quite that good, but. But having sitting there and enjoying it, like it was pretty great. So anyway, a, do you get to see a lot of footage of like infrastructure, of, like switch yards and stuff? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like we have to get, and there's like a, a lot of talk, like a lot of jargon. It's like we have to get into the siding. That siding's only 200 feet long. Like you'll never fit the back five cars into it. Well, you have to like, do the coupling wrong, and it's like, and it's like, oh, the air brakes aren't working. It's it's a lot of like specific stuff about trains and about and about stuff. There's a really cool scene which accomplishes nothing, where they have to pull the train into. <laughs> So they have to pull the train into a rail yard to pick up some freight tr- freight cars, and they have this giant lazy Susan that turns the train around, right? Sure. And so sure. the purpose of the scene is that, like, Chris Pine's a rookie. I, I had one of those yeah. in my play school train set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yes, it's yeah. really cool when it's really big, right? And it's, yeah. it's big and heavy. But the, the, the thrust of the scene is that Chris Pine is the rookie, and Denzel Washington is the veteran, and Denzel Washington is black, and Chris Pine is white, and Chris Pine is doing it wrong, and Denzel Washington is, like, sort of stringing him along and seeing if he figures out that he's doing it wrong before zinging him. Um, so it's a scene you've seen a million times, but it was made really cool by this giant train rotator. And then you... <laughs> and then, and then uh, he plants heroin on him, and uh, you realize yeah. you've seen this movie. Before. Exactly. Although it is kind of funny. Um, this this movie was directed by Ridley Scott's son, who also directed the taking of Pelham One Two Three, which is a different Denzel Washington on a train movie. Which is strange that that's becoming a subgenre. It's like it's like Kate Beckinsale and Werewolves and Vampires. It's like why is he making more than one of these? Like, does he have some sort of agenda or fetish or something? Like, it's like snakes on a plane, Denzel on a train. I mean, it's just gonna be a new meme. If 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 Samuel Jackson kept making snake movies, he made Black Snake Moan, right? He made Black right. Snake Moan, and then of course there's uh, there's Deep Blue Sea, which is another monster movie. But if Denzel Washington then like came out with sort of like Cobra Attack, right? <laughs> and then after that he came out with like you know Day of the Viper, and you're just sort of like, why is Denzel Washington? Keep, why does Samuel, Samuel Jackson, Jackson yeah. keep? I'm sorry, that was very racist of me to confuse them. Uh, why does he keep <laughs> making snake movies? Like why does he like snakes so much? Like like I don't know, man. It's like these things, these specific things that you identify very early in life as nouns. Look, <laughs> like they have a Den- special cachet, you know. Denzel, like- Denzel, Denzel Washington is getting is all due respect. He's getting older. He's tired. He doesn't want to run around as much. Trains you don't have to run because they're on a track. You know where they're going. You can just sit in the train, and the train's going to take you there. Makes exactly. it a lot easier. 
And hasn't Denzel, Denzel, the train there. Hasn't Denzel played a number of roles recently where he's like in a few weeks before retirement too? I think so because he's getting older, right? And he's trying to find those roles where he can still be an action hero, uh, right? Or still be a hero of some sort. Um, but yeah, I think – I mean there's, there's a lot of movies Denzel Washington has been in where he's like a beleaguered working man or like a guy being forced into early retirement yeah. uh, or he's like just about to leave. Like uh, I guess what's another one? Well, I mean I like, I like John Q a lot. Right. Um, wait, wait, uh, by which I mean, I think it's incredibly terrible, but I was quite fond, like quite fond of the trailer. Um, but that's the one where he's like an out of he's like a guy at the plants. He's losing his hours and his kid needs heart surgery and he doesn't have health insurance. Sure. Uh, and that sort of stuff. And, and then holds, there's the and he holds everyone hostage. Exactly. Exactly. That movie's really bad, but he plays a similar character in it. Um, but he did. I don't know. Is he retiring an American gangster? I didn't see that movie. You didn't so, see American Gangster? What about no. the uh, – wasn't he in um, The Pelican Brief? That was like 15 years ago. That was mid-90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was in The Pelican Brief. He played Gray. Yeah, no, back when he was, yeah, back when he was uh, a, a, young, a young guy. Yeah, so back it, before Julia Roberts was eating or praying or loving any of those three. So if you're asking if he was if if you're asking if he was playing old characters on the verge of retirement when he was a young man, then the answer is no. Rather, he wasn't. Unless he was one of those great school productions where they take like a kid who's a sophomore in high school and they like draw the lines on his face and make him put his hand on his back and act like an old man. <laughs> I know those are, those are great. <laughs> I know yeah, you guys yeah. are the great debaters, but I I'm having <laughs> deja vu. <laughs> Oh, this is much ado about nothing. <laughs> Actually, in, 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 Malcolm X, in, in Malcolm X, he played a guy on the verge of retirement. There you go. Unfortunately. He's a man on fire, and I would um, need more than one training day to... Uh, I don't, you know, I don't know. To get, to get the amount of game that he's got, because uh, I don't know, man. he I'm got game. To- I'm starting to wish I were saying elsewhere right now, Matt. I don't know. <laughs> what? You're, you're astonished by my virtuosity? <laughs> oh, I love that movie. That movie's awesome. <laughs> that movie's great. That movie is so good. I mean, I, I find difficulty talking about it other than just praising it. Because uh, that's, that's like Russell Crowe before he was famous playing a robot that eats glass and like lives in a virtual reality world. And Denzel Washington as a cop with a robot arm. It's so good. It's, uh, <laughs> you see, it's a glass theme podcast. Hey, I was wondering if we could do something that we've never done before on the podcast together. Stay on topic? Have a topic of <laughs> No, absolutely. <laughs> I, would never, I would never ask you for that. Avoid uh, swearing? <laughs> no, that's that's okay. Every every now and again, it gives us a I little pledge uh, allegiance to the flag. <laughs> a little saltiness. Here's what I'd like to do. I would like us to brainstorm a movie together here, <laughs> and, and I'll tell you what this film is about. Okay. Uh, this film is about a group of young, obnoxious, uh, highly educated technocrats who triumph over a bunch of old, salty union guys uh, and save the world. <laughs> Does that make sense? It's it's about the uh, it's about the ascendancy of obnoxious kids and their cell phones and their computers, uh, right. and their uh, their triumph over old grizzled work with your hands boots on the ground get things done uh, Americans. I'm so positive. Like- I'm I'm positive that this movie was made in the eighties. I'm not sure which one. I want to say the secret of my success, but it's not quite that. But I, I feel this movie has been made already. I have a title. The Weird title science. is is. Uh, <laughs> Smart Grid. 
That's, that's terrible. That's terrible. That title is terrible. Why are you doing that? <laughs> no, I think I think what do you what do you call it? Um so so you want to make a movie, but so why are the old people evil? Like like they have to be evil for some reason other than just being in in a unless you're making like a straight up anti-union movie. Here's their, which they're, like, they're, they're evil because they're trying to preserve their job security and retirement <laughs> benefits. <laughs> Matt, I don't know if I could get on board with this project. No, um. Wall Street. Wall Street made was that movie. Ripping up all the old union guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. Um, that's well, I, I was, I was thinking I of Indiana true. Jones and the Crystal Skull, where you, <laughs> where you have like the young, brash biker guy the in the fifties. Dog, Indiana. Exactly. Who exactly. through his uh, through his power of swinging from vine to vine like Tarzan, you know. Mm. Okay. Well, here's how we do it. The old you know people what? are it's, actually it strikes- they're actually aliens. All right, they're infested by aliens. <laughs> They have aliens that live on their backs and, and suck their brains out, right? Uh, and such that they're incapable of dissenting against uh, what's going on around them, even as the infrastructure that they helped build is, is deteriorating and as their leaders are lying to them and betraying them, like they can't help but be loyal foot soldiers and sort of march humanity into the abyss. And so a bunch of kids decide uh, they're at a job fair and they realize that <laughs> one of the employers is going to infest them with these, they invite them to an interview, and they realize that there are aliens in the room that are going to hook into their brains. This is how the aliens reproduce. They do it through uh, college and university career, you know, departments. Yeah, it's I, just, I don't. It's just, it's just be a takeoff on the "I'm a Mac, I'm a PC" ads. <laughs> That's what we do. We 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 have those two guys in it as yeah. the Mac guy and the PC guy, but they fight evil evil crime aliens. Yeah, um, actually, cool. th- this this sounds remarkably similar to the plot of the 1998 uh, in, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers uh, ripoff, The Faculty. You guys remember oh, that? Yeah, 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 definitely. Because because that's about a bunch of smart kids who you know reasonably smart kids who use science and their wits to outwit uh, essentially the the local teachers union who happen to be possessed by aliens in this case but that's that's neither here nor there uh and and triumph uh, and triumph over the day so yeah clearly this movie's been made i think we talked about the faculty just last week for some reason i think it was in the context of actresses who are actually successful now versus ones who have been like sort of left behind by the march of time um yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and but I don't mean to be too mean to her because I think that you know it's not that she did bad work or anything like that. It's just that she hasn't been. I haven't seen her in anything lately. Wait, John um, Stewart was in that movie. He was. I think that might have been why we brought it up either last week or the week before because oh. John Stewart talked because that's how John. Stewart oh yeah, was it was at the. It was because it was at the uh, the March of Dimes or the hmm. March on. Washington. <laughs> it's not the March of Dimes. <laughs> 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 whatever it was. The rally oh, for the rally to preserve san- to restore sanity and or fear, right? Not not the rally to end polio. We don't have we don't have quite that. How gosh, how pre, how like pre postmodern of you to want to actually cure something? Like, geez, aren't you a sophisticated urbanite? Aren't you supposed to realize that problems don't really have solutions? They have dialectics. Uh, <laughs> hey, there's I've two seen, sides to every story. I've seen one the wire. That, you've seen the wire exactly, exactly. There are two sides to every story, and one of them is polio, um, and the other <laughs> is ending polio. And it's really you have to teach the controversy really when you get right down to it. Um, polio, it's hard to keep that straight. Uh, oh. Unfortunate. Uh, <laughs> okay. So do you actually want to dig into this movie? So maybe we don't do the aliens angle because it is a lot like the faculty. But there has to be some sort of reason why these older guys are bad. 
like I guess or they're why the good people are good, right? Um, okay, uh, here here we go. It's a it's a car company, and they're looking to try and make it environmentally friendly. But the old people are invested in the existing infrastructure and the existing way of making cars because that's what they were trained to do and that's what their job security hinges on. But the young people have this new HEP way that will produce these, I don't know, fantastically economically and environmentally friendly cars and the old people resist it. There. Boom. Go. That movie is uh, – let me get – I want to get – the parallelism right so i need to find out what year it was on but that movie reminds me of the 1996 movie the arrival uh, as long as everyone as long as the bad guys are still aliens uh, <laughs> <laughs> i thought the bad guy, you just said the bad guys can't be aliens uh, well you know i'm just saying i'm just saying it sounds similar because uh, that's the one where the aliens are actually titans of industry who are pumping greenhouse gases into the air to terraform the earth for colonization and charlie sheen like realize is a is an astronomer who discovers this and goes hunting after ron silver the late great ron silver who is of course a, a great american uh, and his and- father is the district attorney <laughs> exactly exactly now it's so, okay. his daughters it's his daughter's boyfriend's father but yeah so okay so all right fine so you have like new infrastructure versus old infrastructure and there's people who are trying to make sure then now we have to, maybe we have to raise the stakes so is the ocean like rising by the minute like so the day after tomorrow right the reason the day after tomorrow is an awesome movie is that global warming happens really <laughs> fast right we don't have to wait around for decades for global warming to happen it happens in like five minutes right one day jake jill is walking down the street the next day nuclear winter like sweeps down he has to run away from the cold literally right <laughs> Um, so we need this to happen unless we want this to be some sort of like multi-day epic or miniseries where we like portray the events of this over the course of like years and years. Um, there okay. needs to be something urgent that's happening. Okay, here we go. There's a tax credit that's just been announced for green cars. And- <laughs> oh, I'm tingling. I'm tingling already. This sounds really exciting. Not, not, not a tax credit, actually. Like, like a, a no, a subsidy, a highly lucrative subsidy for the American giant, auto industry. A giant crate full of gold bars. How about that? That's going to go out to the person who figures this out. All, all, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm much, less, uh, much less enthused about this movie. <laughs> they should start with some sort of trade embargo. It worked for Star Wars 1. <laughs> that's true. That's true. For, for, certain, for taught, certain definitions of work. Yeah. If George Lucas has taught me anything, it's that international trade negotiations are a great way of, of creating a sweeping uh, narrative that captures the imagination and allows for non sequitur space car chases. Um, and we such. need some CG characters in this, too. Otherwise, you know, George Orwell. Oh, well, oh, so. yeah. That's a good point. We should definitely have something that sass talks in this movie. <laughs> well, like I, sass talking. Iron Man, Iron Man proved that assembly line robots can have personality if the, if their servo arms move in a particular way. So let's just have the assembly line robots on the car plant be, you know, hep. Okay, so it's the kids team up with the plucky assembly line robots who are making the cars, and the robots feel bad about making cars that are bad for the environment. So when the tax credit gets passed by co- by the House of Representatives and about to get passed by the Senate, the kids need to uh, raise money for a lobbyist to go to the Senate. <laughs> so they have a so they decide to auction uh, costume jewelry on eBay uh, to raise money. No, 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 no. What they do is they steal a bunch of credit card numbers online. (laughs) 
making model trains. By making model trains. The, the, movie is, the movie is called Hackers, <laughs> and at the very end, a rain of broken glass comes from the sky. Yes, yes. See, now this makes you appreciate a movie like Unstoppable, right? Because <laughs> there is a train, and it is going from one place to another place on track, and it's either going to crash into something or not, and Denzel Washington has to stop it. And here it is. We're trying to come up with just a really simple – we have a really simple idea behind the movie, like a really simple theme that we're trying to put out there. But uh, this thing is just – this is off the rails, as it were, uh, in terms of creativity. Although I I did play this game once with a very good friend of mine – uh, J- my name, my friend JP, and I played this game once for a long time, and and because uh, we were trying to come up with the worst movie we could possibly come up with ever, uh, and it was called Ironworks, and I think we said it starred Sandra, uh, starred Sandra Bullock as a, a worker at a smelting plant, who like had to go fight crime. Uh, and it had lots of <laughs> it had lots of zipline scenes and like somebody driving an ice cream truck as like a supporting character, and so she would like take her hammer and put it over the wire and like zip down into things while saying a whole. bunch bunch of one-liners like there was not a single line of dialogue in the movie that was more than one sentence long um and i think that the villains were i think we actually like because we wanted to make it everything that we hated about movies and unfortunately when we were done and we looked at it we we're like oh like that actually would probably be pretty watchable like, this like, would have been magnet man then oh yeah it pulled straight from uh, mega man 3 in fact uh where he has not been getting a lot of work since but uh <laughs> it's really hard to get work if you're a former mega man villain or if you're uh, an American over the age of 55 who's out of work. Oh, wow. um, did, you, did you just pull out of the now 15-game Mega Man series which one Magnet Man was in just off the top of your head? <laughs> I think it was three. I th- might have that, been four. That's been impressive. Four. No, no my, my, I, I'm genuinely impressed by that. I don't doubt it. Oh man! We should push. I, I, uh, we should push on. Probably. Okay. In this yeah. That's I? true. <laughs> Lodestone boy, Magnet Man, and Lodestone boy. I think that's. Uh, I think that's great, though. I'm gonna. Um, I'm gonna write up a little treatment of that movie and and shop it around to uh, to production companies and see what they think. Hey. Make uh, sure you- in precisely 90 seconds of female nudity because that's that's really what's going to push this over the top. Exactly. <laughs> that's that's going to make this that's going to make everybody want to watch it. Was there nudity in Unstoppable? Uh, there was not nudity because it was outside in Pennsylvania and it was cold. So it was not only was there no nudity, but people were actually wearing coats with vests on top of it. There's actually a little bit where one of the characters is wearing a vest on top of his coat and it's a subject of comedy. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> So don't so don't do that. Although it would be pretty funny if like Denzel Washington is like, I need to stop this train. Then he like tore his shirt off. <laughs> it's like get me on there. It's like it's like he's got the bandana around his head and he, definitely, definitely. And then he freezes to death before he gets there. <laughs> he's like, Oh my god, it's cold. Oh, it's so cold. Why is it so cold outside? This train is a mile long. I can't get to the front, it's too cold. Anyway, we should push on. My skin is Sticking to the metal of the <laughs> Oh, that is so painful. It's unbelievably painful to rip my skin that is frozen to the metal. So, so speaking That's of a- pushing on. Yeah. <laughs> That's a Will Ferrell bit right there is what that is. Where he's like, oh, I'm having – I'm in so much pain right now. But uh, anyway, yeah, uh, yeah. So Unstoppable, not the only uh, recent premiere of a hot media property, Call of Duty, uh, latest game. Uh, John Pierce, yes, over to you. As we as we point out in the open thread on Friday, Call of Duty debuted this week and made 
according to news items, about $360 million in its first 24 hours on sale compared to... Compared to, you know, Avatar, which dragged its feet to make its first $360 million. I mean, that took, what, like three months? Three and a half months? Come on, guys. Seriously. Does this, does this count uh, pre-orders as closing the transaction on the day of release, or does it count pre-orders uh, as happening when the orders were issued? Uh, the news says, the, the news item I'm reading from the AP says $360 million in, uh, raking in $360 million. So I'd assume that only counts actual transactions. Like, if, if, for a pre-order, I, I would guess that doesn't count unless you actually pick it up and hand over the cash. But transactions even, with rakes. What? Transactions mm-hmm. with rakes, if you're raking it in. Oh. Yes. Oh. Unfortunately. Oh, yeah, rakes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry, uh, we, we we all dropped the ball on that one, Randall. <laughs> yes, Listen. you're correct. That is perfect. Excellent. Great. Great. So, so yeah this this opens up this opens up some interesting discussion in the in the growing I guess the growing trend of uh, video games being much bigger uh, media properties, at least financially, than uh, than movies. I took I took the liberty of looking up some some other items while we were talking about I don't know movies we weren't going to make. And Halo Reach, for instance, which debuted in September, uh, earned uh, two hundred million in its first day after release. Uh, Medal of Honor, which was uh, released earlier, or actually in October, um, uh, only sold a mere one and a half million copies in its first week, which means it only made about between ninety and a hundred million dollars in the first week it was on sale. Which I guess is apparently not that big a deal in the video game industry, although. What's the last movie we can think of other than Avatar that made $100 million in its first week? You know, this is interesting, though, because it, I, I, I'm both happy and sad at, the, at these numbers because I'm very happy at it because that we're actually doing things interactively instead of, you know, just going to watch a passive movie somewhere. I think it's really great that we're spending all of our money on things that are more interactive. What scares me is that all the titles you mentioned are all war. I mean, we're, we're becoming a very aggressive society. Uh, through and expressing it through these these kinds of games, I'm 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 sort of flabbergasted. Well, I think I think a big part of that is the multiplayer aspect because I think that's a big drive for these games. And uh, war shooters and first person shooters and action games tend to lend themselves more readily to the online multiplayer aspect. So yeah. Uh, so yeah, Call of Duty, a very big a very big multiplayer game. Medal of Honor, I think it's it's trying to push itself in that space. Halo, obvious obvious multiplayer potential, and to to take it to take it away from the, uh, well, I was gonna say to take it away from the war aspect, we have World of Warcraft. So that what part of that isn't war? <laughs> nothing the, nothing warlike about it's got that. Craft, it's got world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so two, three things, three things. Uh, first, I'll say when you said what other movie other than Avatar makes a hundred million in its first t- first time day out, and I think of uh, unfortunately, I think it's the Twilight movies are really what's pulling in that these days, which is kind of unfortunate. Uh, second of all, is that while we can uh, despair about the war. Um, stuff in video games. I, I would also remind everybody that it's probably actually less pronounced now than it used to be because I think um, I still think that one of the top games uh, in terms of holding the crown for sales is still The Sims, right? As being like a franchise that just pulls in tremendous amounts of money, um, and that being a kind of game that really didn't exist earlier on so much, at least in terms of being broadly popular, right? Like, like is there is there hope in in 
titles like The Sims, um, and they had a new expansion that just came out called Nightlife, right? Uh, which I suspect will probably be bought by a lot of people, um, and, and and sort of like broadening the horizon of that a little bit. The third thing I'd say is just a, a little fun fact, which is the first I remember. I actually remember this happening: the first time that a video game opened w- by making more money on its opening weekend than the movie that came out that same weekend that was the top movie was back in November twenty third through twenty fifth of nineteen ninety eight, when the Legend of Zelda: Ocarina of Time made more money than A Bug's Life. Um, which actually, Bugs Life still made a fair amount of money on its opening weekend, but Ocarina of Time, of course, is a huge, huge seller. Um, so at any rate, um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess it is kind of sad that all these movies are war movies. One of the things I would also remark on on the war movies, and I'll jo- toss it back to you guys in a second because oh, I'm talking war, too war much. Games. Yeah. It, war games. Sorry, war games. Sorry. Is uh, they they can make a lot of them now. Right, like I remember when a first-person shooter, when there was really only one or two or three first-person shooters out at any one time that anybody would really be interested in playing, right? Uh, but now it seems like if you play something like Call of Duty or Modern Warfare or, or Modern Warcraft or um, World of Modern, um, <laughs> I, I mean, I feel, it feels like they, they can really pump out these titles. Like I played Goldeneye for like five years. Right, and now it's like new shooters are coming out all the time, uh, and there's people who are really enthusiastic about about playing them. And I would all in a bit of a bubble, and that like there's this core group that supports them, but the penetration to the larger audience might fatigue at some point or something because I just can't see this rate of interest in this particular genre sustaining. I mean, do people? I guess people really love shooting things, but um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I've been playing StarCraft too, as I mentioned a couple times, on the, which is a very warlike game. I mean, it's very much like a war, once again, with aliens. Strangely <laughs> apropos. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know whether it's a bad reflection on our society that the war games are dominating the top of things or whether it's a reflection of the efficiency of these companies to continue to produce and market these titles that are fairly similar to one another. Uh, like just the machine that rolls them off the assembly line and develop, still develops the individual ones for years before releasing them, but they still just get pumped out there. Well, it is good uh, in the sense that these, these games are actually, you know, although they're tribal because it's us versus them, the us is usually teamwork. So in that sense, it's really good that people are cooperating with each other to go defeat whatever f- fictional enemy is on the other side. So I suppose from a social aspect, I'm ha- actually kind of happy that we're talking about team-oriented games and not necessarily just uh, one-on-one bang-em-up games. Yeah, that's think- true. I think the team aspect, though, is rather late to the genre because for almost all of the history of the first-person shooter, going back to GoldenEye and coming up through, I guess, last weekend. Doom and Doom! The, <laughs> the, the, idea, the idea of the first-person shooter has been, you know, who, who, in the, who in the playing field has the most kills, who scores the most hits. And if there is a team... There's less. There's less of a tactical element involved. Like there's no sense that you know. Oh, we need to move in as a unit and cover each other with uh, with covering fire. And while while I haven't played a lot of Call of Duty Modern Warfare, I've watched other people play it who are very good at it. And even then, with the team aspect, there's no real. There's no real teamwork involved. There's no leapfrogging through doors. There's no covering someone while they dart across an open field to to pick something up. It's it's pretty much go off on your own, rack up as many kills as you can for your side, and then if you get killed, you know, respawn and and try and help help people out. But there's uh, there aren't many. I know there are some first person shooters that. St- 
stress the teamwork element a little more heavily, but they are not the popular ones. Well, Belinky and, and McNeil have been playing a lot of Modern Warfare 2, which does a lot of that, right? And I watched them play it while they were uh, while we were over in town together, and they've been playing it online, too. They can play it with each other, where you do co-op against the computer. Uh, so I guess it's no less when you're playing against other people. The big one, the big example of what you're talking about, though, is probably Left for Dead, right? Where it's the people cooperating yes. against the zombies. Like that's the big example of like a really co-op oriented shooter, um, and and that's definitely a different sort of phenomenon. So I would almost say that that. Uh, you know, kind of semiotically, these things are functioning differently. That a co-op shooter is sort of means is a different sort of gaming experience than the the sort of understood kill counting shooter. Because I feel like when you play a shooter where the only goal is to kill as many people as possible, other than yourself, or perhaps to like not die while shooting as many other people as you can, um, or like going to go get the key card, which incidentally involves shooting a lot of people whilst not getting shot yourself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like when you're playing one of those games, it's like you have to objective get the key card. This really is is a euphemism for kill fifty Russians. <laughs> uh, like it actually makes me think of back when uh, Grand Theft Auto Three was out. I think it was three. It might have been San Andreas, or might have even been Vice City. But uh, there was that mission where the just flashes on the screen: kill all the Haitians, kill all the Haitians, <laughs> and people and like the news is reporting like this could actually be a problem. <laughs> like, does this go over the line? <laughs> like, and people are like, oh no, this, this is not really. And it's like you can't get even more obvious. Like than giant capital letters. But I, I, what I was saying is that when you're playing a shooter that's kill-focused, I feel like you never really question why it's kill-focused. There's a real understood sense of meaning that, of what you're supposed to be doing and the purpose of the game when you're playing it that feels very different from a co-op shooter. Like it just sort of – it feels like you're in a, a different gear, right? It doesn't feel like they're variants on the same sort of thing even though they involve a lot of the same skills. I think that they feel like different games. Um, yeah. I think I know that I'm playing. Uh, I've been playing Red Dead Redemption. I got that when it came out a few months ago. And one of the things they have is they do have co-op uh, shooting games in there. And you, you really do want to pick like you know you want to have one guy that's got a good close artillery and one guy that's got a good long range shooter. And you can revive each other if one if somebody falls, another guy just has to get to them and stand by them for for three or four seconds. So you learn strategies about staying together and stuff. I think it's pretty cool that that's in, yeah. that's in that game. Yeah, having having made a very broad statement about you know first person shooters not encouraging team or play, I've since thought up several examples that invalidate my thesis. Uh, among them, the very popular uh, uh, I think it's Team Fortress Two uh, that's that uh, Valve released, and that has that has very distinct uh, character types. You know, you've got your guy with the flamethrower, you've got the guy with the big heavy gun, you've got your guy who can sneak around and shoot real well, and the game is designed to encourage you to pick a team that has a, a good breadth. Of of uh, character types yeah. on it, or you have the different the different play types in the Halo series, like the like King of the Hill, for instance, or Capture the Flag, and those, in my experience, require a lot more teamwork because you have one person who's standing on the hill or who's taking the flag, and you've got to have other people cover him. Or, or otherwise the mission fails. That, remind, rem, that reminds me of this really classic game that had a very similar concept. Uh, it's called Ice Hockey for the Nintendo Entertainment yep. System. And you had some people <laughs> who were big fat people, and the big fat people were good at fighting, and you had the skinny people who could skate fast. <laughs> then you had the people who were sort of in the middle, and they could do kind of both, right? And it was really important when you were picking people arbitrarily at the beginning of the game to have a strategy to justify the arbitrary choices that you were making in, in making your ice hockey team. Like, oh, I need to have all fat guys so I can fight really well, or all I need all fast guys so I can get really fast in there. And uh, the fat guys also could shoot really strong too, I think, which is of course a further uh, issue of the conflation of fat and strong. 
um, which is so humorous. <laughs> There's a great Onion article about that. But uh, yeah, no, it's like, oh, man, this guy's so big, he can hit that hockey puck so hard. Um, when in um, fact, like only only really part of you is involved in that. So. That reminds me of the of the Nintendo game, the NES game Blades of Steel. Which... Oh, so good! Oh, so good! Oh my god, oh, that's yeah. almost as Blades of Steel is as good as Virtuosity. I'm going on a limb. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Blades of Steel, which also had just a from the menu, you could select a a fighting mini game for it, which would just let you play out the the fighting segment, which is when you know when two characters get into a fight, it would cut to a little mini game with the two of them slugging each other. But yeah. when you selected it from the menu, it, it kind of defeated the purpose because it would just call up, you know, two guys fighting each other. And it was just tapping the B button as many yeah. times as you could until the other guy <laughs> fell down. You can block. You can block. No. <laughs> Pete, can't you? Once. Prior to, <laughs> Pete, prior to, prior to Tekken 3, when did people block in fighting games? There just wasn't. <laughs> oh, Soul Calibur. Soul Calibur and Tekken. Those are the only games where blocking ever matters. Well, you never pushed down, and you never did like the sort of sonic boom turtling with Guile back in Street Fighter Two back in the day. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, when you're in a world of leg sweeps, the blocking man is king. Like you got to be able, not not just block, but like cower and block, like get as small as possible. You got to play video. You got to play fighting games not to lose, right? So you want to just like hide. As soon as the game starts, the first button you should push is backward. In fact, you should either jump backward or run backward as fast as you can, or you should squat down and push backward which isn't going to do much in most games but it makes no, you no, feel no. like fi- you're, cover- you're covering game, your face the, in yeah. a fighting game the first thing you should do is is launch the quickest attack you have followed by the cheapest attack you have followed by the most <laughs> powerful attack you have followed by either blocking or sidestepping depending on the game and amazingly that's- enough that's done by simply jamming all the buttons at the same time Usually, yes. Usually, that works. So you can already visualize what a uh, like a series of fighting game matches between me and Parrot would be like. So like I would just jump away, and then there would be a punch, and it would hit air, and then he would like shoot a fireball at me, and I would block it, and then he would hit me again, and I would block it, then he'd hit me again, and I would block it, then he'd power up with some ridiculous unblockable thing, and I would sit there, and then he would hit me in the head, and I would die, and that would be the end of the. And I'd be like, this is great. I love this game. <laughs> and I'd be, I'd be going like down, <laughs> down and forward, forward A B. Shit. <laughs> like, okay, down, is bu- forward, is forward and down A B. I'm trying to shoot the fireball. Can you please be quiet? I'm trying to shoot the fireball. It's not really- working. Why, goddamn? I'm just, I'm taking my headset off. Oh, yeah. This is nonsense. <laughs> All right. <laughs> there you go. In my history of fighting games, <laughs> in a nutshell. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I, you know, you do learn gradually after a while to just spam things. <laughs> but um, you, you learn to play some other game. <laughs> oh, okay, fair enough, Mister Hacker. And you go, uh, don't you rob a bank with a train? Um, wait, <laughs> that didn't work. I'm on my getaway train. <laughs> That's, that's incidentally my favorite Ali G moment ever is when he's talking to the former – I think he's talking to the former head of the CIA and he's like, um, are you ever scared that terrorists is going to run a train into the White House? <laughs> like, no, <laughs> a train has to run on tracks and there are no tracks that are going up to the White House. He's like, what if they built them at night? <laughs> <laughs> that is the problem with using a getaway train. It does leave tracks. <laughs> oh, that's uh, apropos. Strangely apropos. <laughs> strangely apropos. Well, hey, guys, I don't know about you, but after an hour on the phone, I've got to answer the call of duty. Ooh. You got you to gotta go to the bathroom? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> do, you want, do you want us to take over for you? <laughs> Dude, a new challenger has arrived. Let's do this. <laughs> Finish him. 
pretty sure. Uh, is that what you're going to do now? Are you going to perform a fatality on this podcast? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Finish it. Finish the podcast. So, um, hey, what is it? What does it remain to do? Uh, look for a smart grid in theaters. <laughs> <laughs> Or don't, or really don't. (laughs) Summer 2012. Don't worry, it'll get beaten out by some nonsense Will Ferrell cartoon anyway. Starring, you know, I don't know. Uh, Yeah, it'll get... I don't know, Josh Hartnett. That's who's in it. You always put Josh Hartnett (laughs) in your movies. Sam Worthington. Sam Worthington. (laughs) Tom O'Penniket. Gotta put Tom Tom O'Penniket in there. Um, Um, All those guys... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> starring them, but uh, what is? By the way, none of those people fit the descriptions of any of the characters. No, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I was trying to think of like Disney Channel stars, and then yeah. I realized I don't know any. They're all in rehab right now, unfortunately. Oh, so it's hard to keep. unfortunate. I'm sorry. Get 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 well soon, Demi Lovato. We love you. We're sorry that you're sick. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, the uh, yeah, <laughs> strangely apropos. Um, <laughs> so, Ironic. <laughs> It remains only to thank Randall Schwartz for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you for coming on, Randall. Thank you. Uh, You can follow Randall at Merlin, M-E-R-L-Y-N, at Twitter, and find him uh, on the internets at Stonehenge. Oh, what's the TLD? Com. Stonehenge.com slash Merlin. Uh, And um, anywhere, anywhere uh, Pearl is hacked, Randall Mm -hmm. is there. Indeed. Um, uh, uh, Peter Fenzel is Fenzelian on the Twitters. Yes, that's correct. F e n z e l i a n. You changed it. Now you're you're one of the few people I know who changed their Twitter handle. What what uh what prompted you to do that? Uh, actually, a half done project. I changed my Twitter handle because I've actually um, bought the URLs for fenzelian.com.org and such because I was planning on launching a website uh, where I would aggregate my writings on various uh, places across the internet. That's a great so idea. Y- you could go to Fenzelian and you could then get linked to Overthinking It, or you could go and read. Uh, so maybe I, I put up the text of a play that I wrote, or you could read something that I wrote about stuff I do for my job that I can't talk about here, or, or things like that. Um, yeah, so I, I wanted to sort of put together an online brand, and I would thank Michael J. Lopresti for giving me the name um, a long time ago, which I've always sort of thought was kind of a funny word, and I thought it looks funny, so I would use it. So there you go. John Parrish, do you want to pimp out your online presence? Sure. I'm Parrish at uh, Twitter. I'm also periscopedepth.com. That's the, that's the home of my blog. And, of course, you can also see me on Overthinking It. On Overthinking It. I'm uh, M. Rather on Twitter and MatthewRather.com for, uh, for news of my musical theater career. Awesome. Silence, unfortunately. <laughs> are, you, are you trying to I perform this, this special move? Are you trying to perform this special move that finishes the podcast yes. and you're not getting it? Absolutely. So, God, now I have to start all over again. It's a very long uh, sequence of keys. And <laughs> respawn, man. Like, respawn. You got to get to the spawn point. Come on. Let's do respawn. This. Uh, you can reach us at podcastedoverthinkingit.com or by calling or texting 203-285-6401. You can also, uh, what, uh, comment on the show notes. The show notes is a lively place to uh, comment on pretty much every episode. We've got a great community of people listening to the podcast. Um, and also uh, visit us on the web for our other articles, www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably Now, wasn't there a level in GoldenEye that took place on a train? 
It was. It was really it was, hard. It yeah, was yeah, yeah. Because, because people would just keep popping out of the train compartments and shooting you, and then yeah. you'd, you'd walk you'd walk down a hall and be like, "Oh, I know someone pops out of this door here, so let me open the door now and shoot them." And you'd try and open it, but it wouldn't open. And then once you passed it, the door would open behind you and be like, "Ah, oh, that is so cheap! I knew there was a guy in there with a clob or with two clobs, and I was going to shoot him, but it wouldn't let me because it had to come from behind." Ah, it's annoying. Yeah, no, definitely. It, it, one of the problems with that level is there's so many boxes on trains that are carrying boxes and of course boxes are the <laughs> the box train method. yes exactly in the box car oh that's where they put them they put strangely, the boxes strangely strangely apropos <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> tragic 